0: Promises. promises are very easy to make, aren't they? But they're often hard to keep. All of us have been on the receiving end of broken promises, and all of us have made promises that we cannot keep. Maybe the, the promise of an ice cream cone after the game, or a commitment to get a project done by a certain deadline, or, or, or broken pledges made on a wedding day. Promises get broken, and as a result, people get hurt. There is one, however, who has a perfect track record when it comes to his promises. He's not a politician. He's not a salesman. He's not a coach. Your Heavenly Father always has and always will have a perfect track record when he keeps his promises. So we're going to be talking a lot about promises this morning. All this fall and winter, we've been working our way through Paul's first letter to Timothy. Last week, we finished up 1 Timothy, and so it would be natural to continue on to 2 Timothy, right? Uh, We are, however, going to skip over 2 Timothy for the time being. We'll return to it after the new year. But we're going to jump ahead to the book of Titus. And there's a couple of reasons for this jump uh... the first is purely selfish <laughs> There are some wonderful advent themes in titus that fit very nicely into our advent schedule uh, but the other reason is that second timothy was written most likely seven to eight years after first timothy and the letter to titus was written around the same time as first timothy some scholars uh, are, are so bold to even claim that first timothy and titus were written on the same day I don't know if I would be bold enough to say that, but we probably know that they were written pretty close to each other in proximity. And so as we go through Titus, this Advent, we're not going to be going verse by verse through the book. Uh, There's quite a bit packed into these short three chapters here, and honestly, there's quite a bit of overlap between 1 Timothy and Titus. Themes like the qualification of elders and how to encourage various groups, those sorts of things come up again. And this isn't to say that Paul copied and pasted from, from 1 Timothy into Titus here, far from it. Uh, but in these next few weeks of Advent, we're going we're to just look at a few gospel themes here in the book of Titus. And so it brings up the question, who was Titus? Uh, unlike Timothy, Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts, so our, our cursory knowledge of him might be a little bit limited. However, we are able from Scripture to, to piece together quite a bit of Titus's story from places like 2 Corinthians and Galatians. We know that Titus was born a, a Gentile and was most likely from Antioch in Syria. And there he was probably converted early on in Paul and Barnabas' ministry. We also learn in Galatians that Titus, as a Christian Gentile, accompanied Paul and Barnabas to the council at Jerusalem where the early church was debating whether or not Gentiles who came to the Lord needed to be Jewish as well. And Titus was kind of example A of here's a Gentile convert who has been following Christ, and we don't need to make these people become Jews. Titus also went on to serve as the pastor at Corinth, where he helped write that wayward congregation. And also he and Paul planted a congregation in the island nation of Crete, uh, following Paul's release from prison in Rome. And Paul continued on his mission trip then, leaving Titus, his his faithful companion and fellow workman in Crete, to continue on uh, this church planting. And so with that introduction, let's dive into Titus chapter 1. And as we do, we'll notice this truth. That we have the awesome responsibility of sharing the message of Christmas, the fulfillment of God's promise made in eternity past with the world. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to uh, turn to Titus chapter 1 or look on the screen. And would you stand as I read this morning? Titus chapter 1. The first four verses, reading in Jesus' name. Paul, a servant of God and and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, this is your word, your word is truth, and I ask that you would sanctify us in this truth this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of every present heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. There is a very distinct Advent theme in these verses, isn't there? Uh, This theme centers around the fulfillment of God's promises that he made to mankind. And this morning we'll look at three key words in these four verses, promise manifested and entrusted. All right, so first let's look at the promise that God made in eternity past, promise in eternity past. Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And there is a ton packed in those verses. Each word is loaded, and we could take weeks pulling them apart. But I, I want to focus on the, this promise that God, who never lies, made. What is this promise? It's a, it's a promise, Paul says, of the hope of eternal life. And it's a promise that was made, Paul says, because paradise was lost. This promise was made because paradise was lost. In our our family devotions at home recently, we've been uh, going over the narrative of Adam and Eve, the the creation account and the the temptation and fall into sin. And as we've been reading through and talking about those things, I was struck anew with the utter, the, the stark reality of the paradise That we have lost. Not just the Garden of Eden, which would be nice, right? Not just the lack of thorns and thistles and probably mosquitoes, which also would have been very nice, right? Um, Not just a world free from sickness and death and suffering, which probably would have been the greatest of those things, right? But the reality that when Adam and Eve sinned, they were removed from the Garden, removed from the presence of the Lord, Removed from the presence of the Lord. But as we turn to the end of the book, as we turn to the end of the Bible, to Revelation, we get a glimpse of paradise as it will be restored. And the most amazing thing, farther, far greater than the eternal life, far better than the removal of death and evil and suffering, the most amazing thing, I believe, will be the presence of the Lord. There he dwells with his people. We will have no fear of him because we will have been removed from our sin. We will be there with the Lord, paradise restored. But I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. One day paradise will be restored, but until then we are stuck in this lost world. Yet none of this, the, the fall, our sin, our shortcomings, none of this, Was a surprise to the Lord God. He knew from, as Paul put it, from before the ages began, from before the beginning, from before eternity passed, he knew that his creation would stray from him. And yet, in his infinite love and wisdom, he still went through with this work of creation knowing that we would leave him, knowing, that, knowing what it would take to bring us back in order to fulfill his promise of eternal life. And as soon as paradise was lost, the Lord God made a, a promise to set things right again. This, this one promise then is really what the Bible is all about. The Lord God making things right, defeating evil and restoring his lost and, and fallen creation. And we see this promise veiled in the Old Testament, but it's, it's there all throughout. The, the first promise that the Lord God made was actually a promise of judgment on the deceiver who came and, and led Adam and Eve into sin. In Genesis 3.15, we read this, the, Lord, the Lord's uh, punishment on Satan and the promise of a deliverer who would come. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The deliverer's heel would be struck, bitten by the deceiver, but the deceiver's head would be crushed by the deliverer. And this promise, the promise of the deliverer who would one day defeat evil was the bedrock in which Adam and Eve and their descendants clung to. We get further veiled glimpses of what this deliverer would look like throughout the Old Testament, Testament sacrifices and, and offerings and that whole system there. The shedding of blood of goats and rams, of bulls, of oxen. Well, it was just a foreshadow of the death that the deliverer, the Messiah, would endure to remove our sins from us. And then along came David, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, the king of God's chosen people. Now, David wasn't perfect. Far from it, right? And neither were God's people. But still, the Lord used his people, used David's descendants to bring about the birth of this deliverer. And the Lord God made this promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said, "...I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." So your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The Lord God promised David that David would never lack a man who would be king. Not a bad promise to receive if you're a king, is it? However, from the outside observer, this promise of the Lord seems like it was broken, broken relatively quickly quickly too because it was about 50 years after that this promise was given that David's kingdom was divided by a civil war. And then 400 years later, David's kingdom had fallen altogether. His descendants were either killed or, or carted off into exile. But yet this promise of the Lord remained. And it was a promise that would one day again come true. Yes, the deliverer would be a king, but the Lord God also promised that the deliverer who was coming would be a servant, a servant who would give his life for God's people. Isaiah 52 and 53 paint this picture of the suffering servant. We usually think of these verses in connection with Lent and with the suffering of our our Savior Jesus. Just look at some of these verses here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul has made an offering for guilt. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The servant would suffer and would give his life for the people of the Lord God the suffering servant would deliver the world from their sins. And there are other Old Testament passages that we could look to. Uh, the one we read from Jeremiah 33, or 31 this morning. Um, others as well. But we don't have time to look at them all, but it's sufficient to note. This promise of a deliverer was found all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's pretty clear, and sometimes it's a little bit more veiled. And while it may have been harder to spot in the Old Testament, this promise was fully revealed in the New Testament. One of the first places in the New Testament that we hear of it is in the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary. In these verses that we're familiar with at this time of the year, we hear this promise. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. There's the fulfillment from the promise in 2 Samuel. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, Mary's son, Jesus Christ, was the fulfillment of that promise that the Lord God had made to David a thousand years earlier. Jesus was David's descendant, both a king and a suffering servant. His kingdom, however, wouldn't be a physical kingdom with borders and capitals and nation-building and armies. No, his kingdom, as he told Pilate, was a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus himself tells us that all the Old Testament promises pointed to him. This morning, Brian read, again, uh, the story, the the account, the narrative of uh, right after Jesus' resurrection, when he was on his way to, to Emmaus and he visits two disciples there and they're talking about the events of the weekend focused on Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his subsequent resurrection and they're amazed by it all. And I love, I love Jesus' words. He said, "Oh, foolish ones, <laughs> oh, foolish ones, "'and slow to heart to believe "'all that the prophets have spoken about. "'Was it not necessary that the Christ "'should suffer these things and enter into his glory?' And I would have loved to be along with this conversation because he begins with Moses and with all the prophets, and he interprets to them all the things in the scriptures that concern himself. In our sixth and seventh grade confirmation class this year, our Bible overview class, we've studied this very simple chart. All of the Old Testament, all 37, 39 books of the Old Testament, are pointing forward to Jesus. And all the New Testament and the 27 books there are pointing at him. And that's what Jesus told those disciples on the Emmaus Road that day. And we need to be reading the Old Testament in the context of the Lord God's promise to his people. The promise of a deliverer, a suffering servant, a coming king who would give his life for his people. Who would give his life for the promise of that eternal life. I said we were going to look at three key words this morning in these four verses, promised, manifested, and entrusted. We spent a lot, a lot of time on, on the first one. Uh, let's move on to the second one then, manifest. Manifest through the gospel. Paul writes this in uh, verse 1 and 2. He says, In the hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time was manifested in his word through the, preaching. the word manifest is kind of a strange word, <laughs> and unless it's in the, the context of a flight manifest at the list of airline passengers or Oprah's name and claim it vision and goal-setting teaching, we really don't use the word manifest. In this context, manifest means to reveal something, to make it known, to bring something to light. And usually there's a, there's a negative context to bringing something to light, isn't there, right? Something bad has happened and, and now we're finding, finding out about it through somebody who has been speaking up. Things like abuse or, or bribery or, or corruption, scandal, those, those sorts of things, right? But it doesn't only have to be a negative context to it, right? Uh, the name behind uh, anonymous donations to a children's hospital comes to light only a- after the donor has died, right? Those things are, are manifest, brought to life. So what was manifested? What was brought to light? What was revealed? Paul says the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the promise that the Lord God had promised before the ages began, this promise was brought to light, was revealed, was made known. And it was manifested at the proper time, Paul says, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, as he wrote to the church in Galatian, Galatia, he said this, he said when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the proper time, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. And we could talk all all morning about the Roman roads that connected the world, that made this the right time. We could talk about Greek being the universal language at the time. We could talk about the peace and stability that the Roman government brought to the world. Uh, But that would be too big of a history lesson for one segment of a sermon. (laughs) Sufficient to say, sufficient to say, the Lord God was orchestrating all of the events of history at just the proper time for the lord and savior of the world to arrive and this promise of eternal life through jesus christ was made known was manifested paul said in verse three in god's word through the preaching of that word through the preaching of that word there's nothing special about preaching or preachers is there right in a in a consumer driven entertainment based culture if if the preaching of god's word can come off if we're being honest as as boring and outdated right uh, <laughs> however and maybe i'm a bit biased in this i i don't think preaching is supposed to be a show no fog machines or strobe lights no pyrotechnics or, or crazy stunts preaching is simple It's a simple sharing of God's word. It's a simple telling of the gospel story, the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the Holy Spirit at work through the word changes hearts and changes lives. Often it's subtly. Often it's gradually, but little by little. Every time God's people gather around His Word, whether it be on, on a Sunday morning like this, or a Tuesday evening Bible study, or a WMF meeting, or a men's breakfast, or, or individually in your own quiet time, whenever God's Word is read and proclaimed, His Spirit is at work, changing hearts and changing lives. And this Word, Paul says, isn't something that we are to keep. Secret, either. Paul says that the Word of God has been entrusted to us in order to be proclaimed through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul says that the Lord God has entrusted him with the word of God, with that glorious gospel message of salvation in Jesus Christ, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. The gospel that Paul was entrusted with is the true story of Jesus Christ who loves you and who gave his life for you, dying in your place and on your behalf, bringing you the forgiveness of your sins. This is the message that Paul was entrusted with and that we are entrusted with as well. We've been entrusted with this very important gospel message just as uh, Pheidippides was entrusted uh, with, uh, with an important message. Uh, you might not recognize the name Pheidippides. Uh, has anybody else heard that name before? You have? You would have, right? He was the runner, right? He, yeah, he's had an impact on the world today. He was the Greek herald who ran 26 miles from Marathon to Athens after, to, to deliver the, the news of the Greek victory after the Battle of Athens. And after running uh, that 26 miles, that's where we get the modern Marathon, right? But after running that distance, those 26 miles, he, uh, he's, his message was very simple. Nike which can be loosely translated, we've conquered. Okay? But then after delivering that message, he collapsed and died. <laughs> but legend also has it that before the Battle of Marathon began, Pheidippides was sent by the Greeks to raise help. And he was said to have ran 150 miles in two days, letting everybody know that the Persian army had arrived. I think his collapse after his 26-mile marathon uh, had more to do with the, the 150 miles of running before than it had to do with after the battle, right? But, but could you imagine if Pheidippides had, had failed in delivering the message of the pending Persian invasion? Uh, the Persian army might have run, uh, run over and conquered these fledgling Greek city-states and quite literally changed the world. The world as we know it would be different. But Pheidippides succeeded in delivering the message with which he was entrusted. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been entrusted with a message. We have been entrusted with the wonderful message of the gospel. And we have been entrusted to share this message with others. And so, this Advent season, I'd encourage you to be conscientious about intentionally sharing the Advent, the Christmas story, with somebody who doesn't know. Maybe it's a coworker or a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor or your family member. But take time this season to share just a bit of the gospel message. Maybe you're hosting Christmas for your extended family this year. Don't jump right into the meal or the opening of gifts, right? Take time to pause as an extended family and read through the Christmas story. The Christmas story is veiled in the Old Testament or or revealed, uncovered in the New Testament. This season of Advent, the, the Christmas Narrative is all about the the story of promises fulfilled. It's all about our our Lord God making a promise to restore paradise to his lost and fallen creation through the death and resurrection of his Son. And I I titled this message, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, uh, because that phrase is a prayer. Come, long-expected Jesus. And it's it's a prayer that we ask God to come in his presence and to dwell with us. Another name given to Jesus in the New Testament is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. As Jesus came, he was God with us. And when he comes again in glory and ushers us into eternity, there God will be forever with his people. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look forward to that day where you will send your Son, Jesus Christ, once again to take us into eternity. But Lord, as as long as you see fit to uh, let that time still linger, Lord, we pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to share this gospel message with uh, somebody who doesn't know. Uh, Help us to be courageous in that regard. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.